I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. The other day, Hannah Meacock-Ross and I were exchanging text messages, and I told her I was high on allergy meds. Not sure if that's possible, but my head did feel very funny. And she told me she was low on life. She was joking, kind of, but I understood what she meant. We go back and forth in our texts a lot about work and life, always apologizing for being behind or feeling low. It's like a teeter-totter, and whichever one of us is up that day reminds the other person that their being down is not actually a personal failure, though we have personalized every failure. We've invented failures. We see a normal ebb and flow of human energy as a defect. We feel like our inability to produce consistent output is evidence of our shortcomings instead of evidence of our humanity. And we are not special, I know. Lots of us feel this way. Like we're reaching the end of a rapidly fraying rope, like we're falling behind, like the problem is our inability to life hack and optimize and make lemonade out of climate change and racial injustice and a global pandemic. In February, a friend of mine sent me an article from The Atlantic called Bring Back the Nervous Breakdown. It's by a journalist named Jerry Useem, who tells us that the concept of the nervous breakdown was introduced by Fortune magazine in 1935, when America was going through the Great Depression. And now I'm quoting. For 80 years or so, proclaiming that you were having a nervous breakdown was a legitimized way of declaring a sort of temporary emotional bankruptcy in the face of modern life's stresses. John D. Rockefeller Jr., Jane Addams, and Max Weber all had acknowledged breakdowns and reemerged to do their best work. Provided you had the means, a rather big proviso, announcing a nervous breakdown gave you license to withdraw, claiming an excess of industry or sensitivity or some other virtue. And crucially, it focused the cause of distress on the outside world and its unmeetable demands. You weren't crazy. The world was. The nervous breakdown was not a medical condition, but a sociological one. It implicated a physical problem, your nerves, not a mental one. And it was a one-time event, not a permanent condition. I'm going to link that article in the show notes because it's worth a read. So we don't have nervous breakdowns anymore, and we don't focus on the sociological symptoms as much as we focus on our personal issues. There are books and podcasts and Instagram accounts and entire businesses built around helping you optimize, insisting you squeeze the most out of your one wild and precious life by reaching for more and more and more. I have been feeling exhausted and depleted and overwhelmed and like I just want to curl into a little ball and sleep for a few weeks or be spirited away to a cabin without Wi-Fi where I just do puzzles with my kids or honestly alone, alone would be fine. I've reread Walden, poetry, Pema Chodron and C.S. Lewis. I've cut down my screen time. I've said no to things I don't want to say yes to. And still, still, I wish I could claim a nervous breakdown and go convalesce in a seaside resort where my prescription is just to stare at the ocean and hydrate myself. I asked on my Instagram if anyone else was feeling like they were on the edge of an existential crisis. And if you were, to send me a voice memo about it, just Record into your phone what you're going through. And you did. And so this episode is for all of us who feel like we're teetering on the edge, who feel like the world is just too much and like 
We could really use a light coma or six months in a sensory deprivation chamber or a prescribed seaside vacation where we just exist. That's not happening, but at least we're not alone. If there's one huge theme that we heard from all of you, it was that working, careers, what we do for a living has changed so much during this pandemic. For many people, the pandemic has been a time where you weren't working for the first time in a long time, and we really live in a society that seems to value career over all else. When you're asked to define yourself as a person, your job might be one of the first things that comes to mind. So when that job changes, when that job disappears, what does that do to your sense of self? How do you define yourself then? As far as total meltdown, I feel like there's this narrative that we have to experience like one momentous, intense period of our life that's like an absolute rock bottom kind of storyline. And really gnarly and terrible things do happen to people, and I've had them happen to me too, but as far as a total meltdown, (laughs) I feel like it's been a more constant and latent feeling in my life for the past, like, I don't know, three years. So I was a bartender, a theater actor, as well as a theater teacher in different venues. And in about a four-day span, all of those careers got thrown down the tube, like, If there was a trifecta of careers that an individual could have had that got, like, utterly destroyed by the pandemic, that trifecta was main. Just talk about 12 months of day in, day out, questioning all of the choices that you had made in life, in school, what training you were going to get, questioning all of those choices every single day, and then spending at least three hours every morning at the kitchen table over coffee, perusing job boards and looking at job after job and just realizing how unqualified I am for everything. Or maybe to say I realize that is not true, to convince myself that I'm unqualified for any and everything that I encounter. And I fill out these cover letters and these resumes and it just like, you know, I've given hundreds of hours to writing freaking cover letters. Those things take time, like shit. And yeah, things haven't really changed for the better for me since then. So (laughs) I don't have advice for you. I have a sardonic, uh, what the shit attitude. Okay. Life goes on. I had been living in the Rocky Mountain region for many years and was working a job at the time that specifically focused on events. So large gatherings of people, um, (laughs) an industry that doesn't really exist anymore these days, but once everything started to happen last year, they offered me a job and I reached out and said, are you sure that this is still going? And they said, yes, absolutely. And then I got here and they came out about a week later and said that they were laying everyone off from the new company and that I no longer had a job. And 
I sat in the tiny 600 square foot apartment that I was sharing with someone else who had just also lost their job and looked out the window at Brooklyn and thought, I have massively fucked up. I don't really know who I am without like the pressure of a job looming over me and the process of getting up every day and figuring out what I want to do feels like a burden. I know that that is really rich. You know, I could be working in a coal mine right now, but instead I'm sitting in my house and not knowing what to do with myself. But it has made me really think of like, what do I want to do with my time on this earth? And even like, is my career worth it? Is my career a good reason to lead my family every day? Is my career a good enough way to spend my like precious time on this planet? It's hard to feel like anything you do is enough when there's just so much suffering in the world. And I have a really hard time not just kind of like watching HGTV in my pajamas and being sad a lot of the time. And, you know, I have a therapist and I'm doing the work to not be depressed, but it feels like who wouldn't be depressed right now? What kind of a monster would look at our world right now and say, everything is fine. Go back to your marketing job. Try to figure out how to sell things to people more because that's what the world needs more of. I just can't take myself seriously lately. And I wonder if anybody else is feeling the same way about their careers. Oh, they are. They are. I recently turned 30 and have been working as a social worker for the last seven or eight years. I got a job when I was 23, right out of undergrad in community mental health. I didn't know anything really about community mental health or social work or what all of that meant, but I quickly fell in love with it and have been working in community mental health since that time. I loved being able to provide information to folks, maybe folks who had never had experience with the mental health industry before. Like, what is case management? What is therapy? Like, what is psychiatry? How are those things different? Like, why does it matter? And then, you know, COVID happened and I was no longer allowed to be in the community. And, you know, the plan for the majority of COVID continued to be, you know, remote services. And on the one hand, again, it was great that we were still able to do our work. Um, but my job went from me being out and about in the community, meeting people where they were at, to basically sitting in my living room in sweatpants with a headset on, like I worked at a call center. And it was just different and not the same. And I did not appreciate how much that impacted me until recently. You know, when I thought maybe it was just time for a change, I had been doing that job for two years. Maybe it was time for me to to move on. Um, and so I looked internally and I was hired for a different position. You know, a job with more responsibility, a, 
a better title, and that's what I'm doing now. And on some days, I do enjoy it. I enjoy feeling like I'm, you know, working in a different department. I'm getting a different experience. Um, I'm a supervisor, so managing people definitely has its pros and cons. But at the end of the day, it is a new experience and, and skill that I think I'm developing. I really thought a new position would make me happier. It would make me feel better. Unfortunately, it hasn't. Um, unfortunately, I still feel very not happy and it's really hard to tease out why that is right is that because I don't like the work anymore is it because I'm overwhelmed or I'm stressed um and it makes me emotional because my job has always been such a fixture of who I was you know crises uh can one last 10 years I guess mine started when I was about 32. I was a professor of engineering at a school in Alabama. And one day a colleague came to work and shot six people, killing three of them. Uh, Thankfully, I wasn't in the meeting when this happened, but I almost immediately started looking for another job. And in the process of looking for another job, found out I was going to be fired anyway. And then in the second year, after moving to Texas, packing up my whole life, dragging my family several states away, I lost that job too because the company I was working for went bankrupt. So yeah, I remember in 2012, lying in bed, crying myself to sleep, thinking how did I become a 34-year-old with a PhD who had no job and a house she had to sell and a kid that she was sure she was screwing up for life. There's a book I recently read, I'll be talking to the author soon, on TTFA Premium, called An Ordinary Age. It's by a woman named Rainsford Stauffer, and I'll link the book in our episode description, but the book is about the immense pressure that we feel when we're young, a pressure that doesn't seem to go away with age, to be extraordinary, to be a person that does something amazing, when really, what is more amazing than just existing? Well, you know, accomplishments. Accomplishments that do in no way inoculate you from the realities of being alive. There's all this pressure in law school to get the perfect grades and the perfect jobs, and it's highly, highly competitive. And it kind of feels like it's going nowhere sometimes because maybe the pandemic, it's really hard for people to get jobs. And I just am wondering all the time if all of this is worth it, all the sacrifices that I made and the things that I gave up. But I get through it because I know that this is going to be good for me and what's supposed to be mine already exists out there somewhere in the time space world. And each day I just try my best and a collection of days of me trying my best, my hope and my idea is that it will create the life that I'm supposed to have in an authentic way instead of using the words supposed, like should type ways. And um, that's where I'm at. I'm 21 years old and I'm going to be a senior in college in the fall. And Every time I think about what I'm going to do after I graduate, I just panic. I don't know if I want to go to grad school or if I should start working right away. And 
everything just seems totally overwhelming and it seems like I'll never find the right answer and like I'm drowning in all of my life. Everyone says, yo, you're 24, like things are fine. What do you have to worry about? But I have to worry about a lot. Um, Through this pandemic, it's been rough, obviously, for everyone in this, but it just sent me into a spiral where I found out I am extremely bipolar and I have ADHD. So that's been difficult figuring out just medication and therapy and trying to figure out what the fuck is happening with my mind is overwhelming sometimes. Along with that, I'm still getting my undergrad degree and switched my major to something that no one in my family would approve of, um, art history, aka the best major ever. Um, So that's another uncertainty. Like, what am I going to do with an art history degree? I don't know. Do I love it? Yes, I love it so much. So between student loans, mental health, uh, figuring life out, I don't know. It's no one gives you a handbook for this. It's so unpredictable and so strange and I'm kind of freaking out, but hopefully it'll work out. Who knows? So a few months ago, I was sitting on a work call from my garage. On this call, we are discussing the future of the COVID response and major components of the COVID response in the state of California. At the same time, it's 7.30 p.m. My children are very hungry. They are 8 and 10 years old. It is 7.30. I have not fed them yet. The 8-year-old, he's hangry. He comes out and he's stomping and demanding, when am I going to be done? Meanwhile, my husband, for whom I'm a spousal caregiver, he has a severe brain injury and is dependent on me for everything, is texting me asking for assistance to use the restroom. So here I am doing work that has so much purpose. I'm a leader in the COVID response in the state of California and have been doing COVID work for more than a year um, in the Bay Area, leading the first shelter-in-place orders where I had to make and was part of making really, really difficult choices. Looking at how do we protect health and save people's lives and at what cost to society. How do we move forward? How do we navigate in uncertainty? I also am doing the meaningful work of solo motherhood of two beautiful humans. And I'm doing the meaningful work of caregiving for a spouse who basically died to me and came back in a different form. And I've been doing that for eight years. So there's so much work, all this work happening. And yet I lost the meaning of it all. Why am I doing it all? And all the work had compounded and eclipsed anything about me. But also, who was I without it? I am, as I defined myself in introductions, a public health leader, a solo parent, a spousal caregiver. But who am I? And that's the question, right? That is every existential crisis. And what is society? What is belonging? What is community? And how do I exist in this world? For what purpose? I've wondered often, you know, the choices we made in public health around shelter-in-place orders and restricting movement. 
you know, what cost did that have on society? And what cost has that had to me in all the work that I have done? So I don't have all the answers, but I know that navigating this space has been terrifying. I've had to find the courage to face the things that I have been running from, the sadness, the anger, the confusion, the fear, the uncertainty. And we are all in extremely uncertain times that test us in ways that we've never had to face before, potentially. I am on the other side of running a major metropolitan hospital in the middle of a pandemic. I'm on the senior leadership team of one of the big hospitals in the Twin Cities. So not only like the death and the fear and the surges and the just horrific situations that our staff and our patients were put in, I also got to lead our vaccine clinic, and I am leading our vaccine clinic, which is fucking amazing. And why would that create an existential crisis? I think I'm in this situation now where I did it. Like, I filled what I've always wanted to do, which was really, truly use my brain and my head and my heart to help people. And I fucking did it. And it was amazing. And I have a million stories about how I did that. But I think internally, the meaning in my life has always been about getting there. And now that I'm on the other end of it, I think a lot of us are having this sense of like, now what? Like, what the fuck just happened? And what are we supposed to do after all of that? What? How are we supposed to walk around and know that little fuckers are in Miami Beach running around with their masks off, you know, gonna go back and hang out with grandma afterwards. And I think one of the questions was, how do you get through? And I think all of us in healthcare right now did it. Like we got through and we, every single day just sucked it up and put it away and got in our cars and drove to work and did the work. And I don't know who it is, like fucking Glennon Doyle or Bernie Brown or one of our, you know, high priestesses. Like your dig deep button like breaks. And that's all I've done my whole life is use that button. Um, And so that's my existential crisis. We'll be right back. We're back. We're all struggling with our careers, with our sense of purpose, and also with our relationships, who we are within them, and maybe without them. Hi, Nora. Uh, I wouldn't call this a midlife crisis because I hope I live longer than 68? Math is hard. Anyway, I'm 34 and a half years old, 
married to a man and I have two kids and just realized I'm actually gay. And now I'm questioning everything I've ever known about myself and the world I live in, in the middle of a pandemic and civil unrest. So we're doing great. That's all. Bye. I decided to go forward with divorcing my alcoholic husband and everything was actually pretty great. Our breakup led him to get help. And even though I was no longer in love with him, we have two small kids together. So we were in no rush to like make things legal, but we were living separate lives and we both started dating other people. And mine was like the guy that I had always dreamed of my whole life. Not too long after that, I was on my way to visit him and I got in a really bad car accident. I rolled my car twice and totaled it and got a concussion, which I didn't realize until the next week. And this was over a year ago and now I'm still dealing with issues from that. And then about a month after that, in like November, uh, my dog was diagnosed with cancer Around that same time, my kids really started to show signs of struggling from my former spouse and I being separated. So everything was starting to just like pile on top of each other. About that same time, my, like, I hate to say Prince Charming because he was way more than a prince. He was an intellectual, very cerebral. He was like my university president, Charming. I don't know. I don't know. Not a prince, but like, anyway, like my dream guy. At this point, we had been together for like six months or so, seven months. And um, that Prince Charming guy, he became physically abusive. I was in the middle of COVID and really like he was perfect in front of my kids. And I really needed his help with the kids because even when I was still working for those first two weeks where they were homeschooling and there was no daycare, my family couldn't watch my kids. My former in-laws couldn't watch my kids because... You know, so many people are high risk, including my oldest, who was born with heart disease and had to have heart surgery at five days old. So, like, we definitely didn't want him around anybody. So I really needed this former Prince Charming's help. And then in July, I don't know what happened. A switch flipped and we were in a situation where um, I I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel comfortable. So uh, I locked him out. And then what he did was he went crazy. He started headbutting the glass door. When his head wouldn't work, then he kicked through it. So I'm on the phone with my mom online. I've never seen him like this. And he took my purse because he thought my purse had his car keys in it. And he leaves. So I go to try to take my purse back from him in my front yard. And I basically have a little like fight over it. And in this fight, I fall to the ground. All my neighbors in my perfect, wonderful neighborhood that I love so much saw everything. It was so horrifying. It was so embarrassing. Um, But I actually went to court and testified that he was in therapy, which he was. And he had letters from his therapist and stuff since July saying that he was seeking out treatment. And the judge asked, so are you saying this was basically just a misunderstanding? And I never said that. And I never wanted to say that. And it really caught me off guard. It was not a misunderstanding. I did not blow anything out of proportion. I did not misunderstand the situation or what he did. But I didn't know what else to say in that moment. I didn't want him to go to jail. It was a felony. 
And I just said yes. And I still can't believe I did that. I did do IVF on my own um, in my mid-30s. I did it twice with donor sperm and it wasn't successful. And then I've always thought, oh, I'll do it, I'll do it later and I'll use donor eggs and donor sperm. And now I'm 49 and now with the pandemic, I'd need to go to probably America to do this. And with the pandemic, that's not going to be happening anytime soon. And even though possibly I could still be like in my 50s and have a baby that way, um, I don't know if that's something I'd want to do. So I think the other thing that's worrying me now, or it actually is consuming me a little bit, but I again just block it, is now admitting that my time to have a child is over, which actually can't even bear to think about. I am currently 30, but my meltdown happened at 28 and is just kind of wrapping up. It started when my best friend accused my husband of doing something really terrible. And he had no memory of it. And I was stuck in a position of having to kind of help my best friend and help my husband through some really terrible stuff and feeling a lot of guilt and shame about picking sides in an impossible situation. I had to change my career so that my job was more in line with supporting myself and my child if we were to be a single-parent household. And I lost my best friend in the process. I lost my social circle. I lost my work that I had really loved for many years. And I'm now in a career that feels very alien, but meets the needs of my family. I have been in therapy for a very long time now, or it feels like it, (laughs) but I've made immense progress, as has my husband and both of us together, um, working through everything that happened and how to kind of pick up the pieces We're coming out of it a little bit, and I am still with my husband, and he had to work through what it was like to be accused of something terrible, take ownership for it, even with no memory of it. And I had to work on forgiving myself for helping somebody that I really loved, for losing somebody that I really loved, and continue to love. Um, and doing what I could to get through. I left a perfectly good relationship with my partner of two years, and I'm not really sure why. I think I might have freaked out about commitment. I think maybe being isolated together for a year kind of exacerbated that, and I packed up my stuff. I moved a couple of hours south to Los Angeles, a city where I really don't know anybody. And a couple of days before I was set to leave, I was also laid off from my job. 
So I managed to get a new job, but I haven't started yet. So I'm sort of existing in a weird liminal space. You know, right now it's Monday morning, I'm sitting in my apartment, doing a crossword puzzle with the cat in my lap and trying not to think too hard about what's next. Because to be honest, I, I really have no idea what I'm doing. When I was in my early 20s, my biological father, who I never knew, sent me a Facebook message and I wrote him back a mean message. How dare you get in touch with me on social media after all of these years? And he died a few days later. Then at 23, I met a great love of my life, Gregory, my husband. And he died when I was 28 from cancer, upon which time I lost our home and land, our community, my job, his income and socioeconomic class status, friends, support group, family member relationships, um, physical and mental health. And recently I've been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and ADHD, and it's becoming glaringly obvious that I am on the autism spectrum. So those are comorbid issues and grief, loss, trauma, and the exclusion that I've experienced in widowhood has exacerbated all of them. I've always been an outspoken feminist, something my husband loved about me, and I lost my voice when he died, and I lost so much at the same time simultaneously experiencing bullying and exclusion and harassment from mostly old, white, powerful men in the music industry. So being a recovering perfectionist, outspoken woman, it has been a, a huge identity crisis. I'm 40 years old. I live in the Netherlands. And um, my meltdown happened in 2018. I was together with my uh, boyfriend, because we were not married, for 17 years. And he was the love of my life. And uh, from all our friends and relationships, we were the ones who were the most perfect. We never thought we had no issues. We had the same humor. Uh, we could laugh a lot. I could not imagine anyone better for me. He was the love of my life. Period. In 2018, we had a son. And I was with an obstetrician who was also my obstetrician when I was pregnant the first time. And I thought this was a very remarkable, inspirational woman because she could really give pregnant women trust in their bodies, in their babies, in the birthing process. And so when I was five months pregnant with my second child, my then-boyfriend and my obstetrician did an ayahuasca session together, which is a medicinal drug from the rainforest, which makes you go trip and hallucinate. And after they did that, they found that um, they were supposed to be together and live a life uh, for God, which also meant that he would leave me. And so my whole world at that point was upside down. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't understand it. The very confusing, difficult thing for me was because I have put them both on a pedestal and I trusted them, so I believed them. 
what was difficult for me was that when a relationship ends, it's not only uh, that you have to say goodbye to the relationship, but the whole idea of who you think you are, of what the relationship was, of what the other person was, and what your life was supposed to be is not true anymore. And that is really hard to deal with, to understand, to grasp, to figure out. Very depressed. Um, I had many moments that I thought I could not live this life. I didn't know how to do it. I had no hope. And right now I'm at a point that I'm doing much better. I'm much more positive. I'm feeling stronger about myself. I've been angry with him for a while. And what I noticed is that at some point I was like, yeah, I can stay angry with him forever, but it's not going to change anything. And then I figured that I'm not angry at him. Now I'm angry at myself because I don't know how to do this life. I don't know how to do this. And um, that was a big eye-opener. That's some big emotional maturity that I do not have. I'm proud of you. I'm so proud of you. And we'll be right back. We're back. As much as humans, me, love categories, organization, making sure things fit into specific places, our existential crises are as unique as we are. There's just so much to think about. There's money, there's health, there's the sands of time slipping so rapidly through the hourglass, you're starting to think, maybe I need to invest in a better timekeeping device. There's looking at your hands and seeing your mother's hands, the same ones that covered your whole tummy when you were a little girl, but now they're your hands on your son's tummy, and you wonder if he feels as safe and as loved under your touch. There's wondering if any of it has mattered, if any of it will matter, If maybe you spend too much time staring at a laptop and not enough time staring at your child's teeny tiny teeth or listening to their itty bitty voice, or if maybe you should have just pet your dog instead of telling her not to nuzzle you when you're trying to work. There's knowing that life is short and that we are stuck in very fragile vessels. Hi, um, my name is Eli. I am 22 and my pronouns are they, them. I... And what a lot of people would consider quite young, I suppose. But I genuinely did not plan to live past the age of 16. My mental health has always been rocky. And then I'm also queer from an unsupportive family. I've had a slew of health issues that I feel have really made me perceive the world differently than my peers. I was diagnosed with my first brain tumor at the age of 19. And then a different brain tumor at the age of 20, and then diagnosed with lymphoma at the age of 21, was in remission for a bit, and then had a relapse and went through the whole chemo thing again. And I'm very, very thankful to be able to say that I'm currently in a partial remission, but just the knowledge that the next tests, the next scans could show that things are bad again. 
really spurs some interesting um, turmoil, one might say, and has led to quite a few crises over the past couple of years. I have a life-limiting illness um, that I've actually had for quite some time that put me at very high risk for death from COVID. So I was very fearful around what would happen to me if I got COVID due to losing my health insurance from my employer and having spent money to move to New York without a ton of savings left. And I thought I could die and put my family and my loved ones in an incredible amount of debt and I don't know what to do. So I basically melted down for about six months and I stopped talking to people and I stopped answering my phone. Basically, most of the contact that I maintained was via the mail. I suddenly sort of rediscovered this love of the mail and sending and receiving letters and cards and things from people. And I realized that that felt really safe. And it was the one thing that I could do that made me feel a little less alone in all of it and figuring out how to answer people's questions. You know, it wasn't as though I was on the phone with someone and they were waiting for my response or sitting with someone in a room, you know, it was on paper and I had the choice and the ability to think about my response prior to sending it. And I could choose not to respond if I didn't want to. And it was, I think, a lot easier for me in that way. And it's funny that that became such a coping mechanism for me and, and something that actually turned into something really beautiful. I think I have spent so much of my life fighting against being uncomfortable and placating myself and my needs and my issues with whatever thing that worked in that moment, temporary distraction, whether it be my career, uh, relationship, friendships, volunteering, activities, art, music, working out, my diet, whatever it was, I did my best to actually distract myself. And then that all came to a sudden and crashing halt. And I actually had to just sit in it and sit with it and face the reality of the uniqueness of my life. And that I had always tried to create this space around myself where I didn't want anyone to worry and I didn't want to cause anyone pain. And I knew that with my illness and the fact that it will end my life early, I have a rough timeline and an idea of progression, what it looks like. There's, you know, maybe not an exact date on the horizon, but I know that I'm not someone that's going to live, you know, into my late 40s, 50s, 60s. Like, you know, I'll be pretty lucky if I make it to 40. So I would say, you know, last year, it's 32. I guess that would make me having my three-quarter life crisis. <laughs> or, you know, end of life crisis and facing this idea of who am I when nobody is looking at me? I was able to open up to people and tell them the truth 
about how I actually was and how I actually felt. And for the first time, I was actually able to share the reality of my life and my illness with some people that were close to me that, that didn't really know that I, I hadn't really told because I thought that I was protecting them. And it has opened up avenues for me that I'm saddened that I didn't allow myself to pursue until now. You know, I try really hard not to get caught up in the idea of wasted time. Life sucks and it's beautiful and it's painful and it's a million things all wrapped up into once. But each moment that I had until right now and today got me here. And this came in the time in which it was supposed to. I'm 40, and my nephew, who was six, died of brain cancer on October 30th. His name was Charlie, and he was sick for three and a half years. I recently moved two blocks away from the house where he lived, in the house where he died, to an apartment two blocks away. His parents moved to a new house just in this last month, and so they don't live there anymore, and someone else does. And um, I think it's just, I was walking by today and just thinking about how it's like he disappeared. And, like, what does that mean about life? That there was a child that was so, so magical. I wish that I could describe him, and I really cannot. He was really sick for a really long time, and so home was his a really safe place. He didn't really like to go places. He just really liked to be in his home with his stuffed animals and his, you know, and just to think that, a totally different family lives there now and but it's like I don't know how you can't have an existential crisis about life and just what is the point of all of this when something like that can happen and just the um the trauma and the grief of going through the three and a half years and then the loss of him um he was amazing he had red hair And I loved him so much. Here we are, a year into isolation and fear, anxiety loss and rage and grief around the world and especially here in the U.S. And so many of us are feeling just stretched to the absolute limit, perched right on the edge. And I know a podcast episode is not the cure. I know that we need more than just each other's stories to get through. But I also think that some of my best work comes from a place of passive aggression. And so if you yourself are feeling burned out or depleted or just like, Time is slipping through your fingers and all of your efforts are in vain if you feel like the people around you just don't get it. Sometimes I think what sharing stories like this does is give all of us a thing to point to as a reference to tell people it feels like this 
without having to name too much of our own specific struggle, without having to bear that soft underbelly for people who might not get it. Because some people don't get it. And it's not always their fault either. I can only speak for American culture, but we love a winner. We love a success story and a comeback story where the fall was quick, the recovery was even quicker. We celebrate bootstraps and a brand of resilience that is unrealistic at best, harmful at worst, because actually growth is painful and uncomfortable and there is nothing in nature that grows forever. Things end, relationships, careers, lives, things stagnate. There's nothing that just continues to climb at an upward trajectory and we cannot treat ourselves and each other like we are the exception to a natural rule. And like I said, there are many, many industries dedicated to making sure you continue to feel like you're not enough, like you might not be working hard enough, waking up early enough, meditating enough, drinking enough water or green juice when really the problems and their answers are bigger than you. We used to make space for this. We used to agree that sometimes the world was just too much. Not that we weren't enough. You are. You are. You are. You are. You are. This is our last episode for a few weeks while we work on the next season. You won't see any new episodes in our feed, but you will find bonus content at ttfa.org premium. We're coming up on five years of making TTFA, and we are lucky to keep doing this work, and we do need your support to keep it going. So subscribing to our bonus content stream will get you <laughs> bonus content, <laughs> uh, longer interviews, ad-free episodes, additional pieces we've been working on that haven't found a place on the feed. We are really excited to finally be able to have this option. And, you know, the economics of podcasting in a world where some celebrities are getting paid literal millions of dollars for podcasts, it's tough, it's tough, it's tough, it's tough. And no big deal if you can't do it. Um, listening to our show is a, obviously a, a big help. It's a big thing. Um, but if you can, if you are interested in that, please go to ttfa.org slash premium. This has been terrible. Thanks for asking. I am Nora McInerney. Our production team is Marcel Malikibu, Jacob Maldonado-Medina, Hannah Meacock-Ross, and Jordan Turgeon. We get help. Um, we get help. We get, all, we get all kinds of help. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. We've got engineers. We've got people everywhere. Everywhere helping us on this. Um, and Jaka really took the lead on this episode, and I'm very proud of her for doing that. So if you see her on the internet, tell her, good job. You're doing a good job. We, we all need encouragement. Jaka, you're doing a good job. So good job, bud. 